I was going to talk about a little bit about Christmas, but that's coming next week, and I didn't want to steal any thunder from John. So I was thinking about looking forward to the new year and what we're going to be looking at in the new year. There's a question that often, particularly in the world around us as we know it, when it's less likely that people even believe in God in the first place, let alone maybe know a little of who he is or who we believe he is, as he's revealed through his truth, through his word. The question can come up, how can you know God? God, man, how can you know God? Really? How can you know he's there? And if you believe he's there, how can you know him? So many religions reveal a God that you don't actually get to know. You can know about, you can learn about, you can worship, you can stand quaking in fear in front of God or gods, depending on the faith. But to actually know him? That's something quite unique, isn't it? It's quite a unique concept. Can we ever know God's heart? Especially when his Bible, his word, declares, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Well, there's no point in even trying then, is there? Well, God says, no, there is a point in trying. Can we ever truly know God? Yes, we can. Partly that's why he's revealed himself through his Bible, through his word. He's revealing himself to us through scripture laid down over many, many centuries, over many millennia for us to read today. Jesus, will be hearing about the incarnation, God, in, God with skin on, next week. Christmas time, when God entered this world, fabric, our fabric, our space and time as man, and he walked amongst us, revealed himself, look, look, you can know me. You can touch me, you can speak to me, you can know me. And I was thinking through to the next uh, January, we're doing um, four Sundays looking through Psalms. We thought time's come to look through four of David's Psalms in particular, a guy, so we know the author of the Psalms, not just anonymous, and we can ground it in his life. And we can understand from the Psalms that we'll be looking through that we're allowed to be honest before God. Psalms reveal the author's heart, don't they? Yeah. It's a real heart-to-heart thing. That's why so many of us, I know, love the Psalms. So many people in this room, I know, you love the Psalms. And there's a reason why. It's a heart-to-heart before God. And it reveals the author's heart. And it reveals we're allowed to be honest. When the, time, when the, the, the trials come and the storms come, it's not about being stoic and pretending everything's all right because I know God's got my back, so everything's all right. And like, this really doesn't worry me. This really doesn't worry me. This really doesn't worry me. God's got my back. We get all stoic about it. Actually, inside, we've, we're dying inside because we're trying so hard to pretend we're okay. The Psalms reveals you're allowed to be honest before God. You're allowed to tell him what you're thinking. You're allowed to lament. You know, woe is me. Where does my help come from? As long as by the end of it, you have allowed his truth to seep in and you go, my help comes from him. We don't wallow in our depression and me in my corner and I'm isolated and I'm just dying just as we're able to. God, lift my head. Show me you. We're allowed to be honest rather than pretending everything's okay when it's not. And this led me to John chapter 17. You can turn to John 17. I was thinking, do you know what? John 17 is Jesus' longest recorded prayer. And this is a heart to heart. How can we know what God's heart looks like? John chapter 17 is God talking to God. That blows my mind. We get to be a fly on the wall. We get to listen in. God, the Son, speaking directly to God the Father. This isn't something that man has made up and scribbled what they thought Jesus might have said if he prayed. This is in the disciples' presence. Jesus then turns to look to the Father and says out loud this prayer. John's quickly scribbling away in his notebook. I've got to write this down later. For all the people to read over the centuries to come. There's five chapters. John 13 to John 17. Five chapters, which is mostly monologue, mostly Jesus speaking. Very little narrative. 
And this is the culmination. This is the last evening of Jesus as a free man before he is arrested, put on trial, tortured and brutally murdered that following weekend. This is the Thursday evening. Jesus is with his disciples and he wants them to hear him speaking to the Father and to hear what he has to say for their encouragement. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the whole chapter. A little bit dodgy because Frontiers Church, our sister church in Exeter, are spending 20 weeks on this chapter. So either I'm a little bit brave or very, very stupid. I don't know, we'll find out. But I'm going to barely scratch the surface, to be honest. But I feel there is so much in here that we can unpack more later, I'm sure. But there is so much here that is just really valuable for us to hear, just to understand God's heart for the Father, but God's heart for us as well. So we're going to look at three things. As much as, you know, look, Amazon. You really go looking for a book on Amazon. I want to know what that book's like. Is it really worth buying? There's a little symbol across the top of it that says, look inside. Have you seen that? You click on it, you get a sample. This is a look inside. Can I know God? Can I know what he thinks? Can I know what's on his heart? Yes, you can. John chapter, John chapter 17, for starters. Let me just pray. And we'll read this through. We're going to read it in three sections. Lord, we're going to hear words direct from you, from your mouth, of your heart for us. Lord, as we hear these truths, as we hear these words, as much as the disciples did 2,000 years ago, Lord, may these words seep into our hearts as much as our minds. May we receive from this greater truth, greater revelation, greater knowledge of you, that we might know you more. Lord, you reveal ourselves to us and so often we can just turn a blind eye, ignore it, stick our fingers in in our ears and shout we're not listening. Lord, show yourself to us so that we might know you more. By your Holy Spirit we ask. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So yeah, this prayer is conveniently, every preacher loves the number three. This is conveniently broken down into three sections, just the way Jesus prays. And he prays for three things. He prays for himself, he prays for his family, and he prays for his future family. He prays for himself, that he doesn't get the applause actually, that the ultimate applause goes to the Father. He prays for his family, for their protection and joy, whatever they face. And he prays for his future family, us and those still to come, still to believe, for our unity. And it all culminates into this one theme I want you to remember about unity and what that is. And we'll come to that at the end. So let's read the first section that Jesus prays for himself. It's the first five verses. I'm sure in your Bible it's actually delineated into these three sections, isn't it? With little um, (coughs) passage headings. So first of all, Jesus prays for himself. First five verses. This is Jesus has been with his disciples throughout the evening. They've had their Passover meal together. They've gone outside. He's been talking through things with them. And then it says, After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Here is eternal God, not just a man, eternal God. Verse 5, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. This is eternal God. 
asking for his glory to be revealed. He's been in the human flesh. He's been the truth with skin on for 33 years. And he's saying, Father, I've glorified you thus far in fulfilling your mission impossible. Yet to be fulfilled this coming weekend. Now, Lord, show the world. Let them see what this is all about. A lot of it, Jesus has been not in hiding, but the time has come for the full revelation of what Jesus is here for. His disciples now get it, now it's for the world to see. This is real love being put into action. Remember what I shared some months ago when we were looking through Ephesians, that grace, the word grace means love that pays a price. This is what Jesus is doing. Just flick back, just for the first verse, at the beginning of this whole section, first verse of uh, chapter 13, when this whole evening started, it's very interesting what, what happens here. This is about real love being put into action. You can say you love someone so much, if you don't put it into action, do you really love them? Simple as that. And here's Jesus, the first verse of chapter 13. It says it was just before the Passover feast. This is this evening, Thursday evening. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. He's putting it into action. What did he do first? He literally got his hands dirty. He washed their feet. Not just a king that a king should wash his servant's feet. The creator, God, washed their feet. He got his hands dirty. And then he got his hands blooded and more so. A couple of days later on that cross, or the following day on that cross. Real love requires action. Grace is love that pays a price. It's an amazing example. That's, what, that's all he wants. When he's praying for himself... He's showing us a heart that loves the Father because he's fulfilling the mission that God has given him. God the Father. How do we show our love for him? By the same example. By putting our love into action. If we genuinely love others, if we genuinely love God, we'll put that into action, won't we? I have to keep asking myself. Some, some time ago, a very, very good friend of mine, I said, I don't really know if I've really got this Christian thing together. I don't know if I'm a very good Christian. He said, the one thing you should keep asking yourself is, am I growing? Compare yourself to last week, to six months ago, to a year ago, to five years ago. Am I growing? Because if I really love the Father, I'll listen to him, and I'll put some of that stuff into practice, and through that I'll grow. Real love requires action. We bring glory to God by completing the work he's given us talking to Julian this morning about aspects of the church elsewhere in other countries. They're putting stuff into practice. We're looking at food bank and debt advice and caring for ex-offenders and all sorts. We, we, we just want to make sure our love is more than just words. It's action. But it needs to be words as well. I was at a meeting last week, I won't say where, but someone was saying, we don't need to tell people about Jesus, we just need to do the action bit. It's like a bit inside me, kind of winced. She goes, it's all about the book of James. The book of James says you need to put your faith into action. If you see, see the action, they'll see the faith. You don't need to say anything. That is what James is saying, but he's not disregarding the fact that, for example, Romans is about if we don't preach it, how will they know? We can love people and not be Christians. We can love people and not know God. It's about word and action together. We need to do action 
that bears out real love, but we need to explain why as well. We should never be afraid to explain why. But why does Jesus pray this? Not just that he'll be glorified. There's a greater goal behind it. Verse 1, to the second half, where the quotes start, Father, the time has come, come, glorify your Son. Why? That your Son may glorify you. Jesus is still so determined to pass the applause on. I love that. Doing what he does, not so he ultimately gets the big applause, so God, the Father, gets the applause. Another brilliant example for us. All of us pointing the same way. All of us as God's people. It's nice to receive acclamation. It's nice to be told you did well. Nice to get a slap on the back. But let's just keep making sure we keep passing the applause on. I loved some of the uh, speeches from the Olympic medalists uh, back in the summer. And some of them were just like, all I can say is I want to thank my mum and dad. Because if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be here now. If, if they hadn't put themselves out, taking me at 6am every morning to training, to the stadium for training camp, to the track or to the swimming pool. And if they hadn't remortgaged their house and so on and so forth, I want to thank my mum and dad. I, loved, I just loved those, those moments on camera. But there was one guy, there was this guy called Jacob Wookie, he's a US uh, archer, and he won a silver medal. And he said this, archery is a big part of what I do. This is what he said to reporters, archery is a big part of what I do, but my identity is in Jesus. He says, since I'm confident that he's in control and he's got a plan for my life, I can give my best and let the rest lie with him. Jacob said, he, Jesus, has given me the talents and abilities that I possess. He passed the applause along to God. I love that. Why do I do what I do? Do I do it so people like me more? Sometimes. Do I do it so I get the applause? There's always that temptation. Do I really pass the applause on to God? I hope so, but I don't always. I need to keep asking myself this. I don't want to just do what I do because I look good. I want to do what I do because he looks good. I, need, I always need to remember that. And that's Jesus' heart, God the Son, passing the applause along. I love that. And that is all he prays for himself. So selfless. So what does he then pray? He prays for his current family from verse 6. Let's read through from verse 6. Up to... You probably have to sit in your Bible. It's up to verse 19, isn't it? So he's prayed for himself that God gets the applause. God the Father gets the applause. And then he goes, I've revealed to you, revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I prayed for them. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world but for those you have given me for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. No one has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled as Judas. 
says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you, here it goes again, you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Verse 11, Holy Father, protect them. Verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them. He's praying for our protection. For the disciples at the time and us now, we're his, we're his family. Protect them. And the other thing, slap bang in the middle of that, in verse 13, I say these things, why? So that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. It's about knowing we're safe and getting a deep joy from that. Let's look at the protection first, then we'll look at the joy. He's praying for our protection. He's not saying, take them out of the world. He's not saying, make life easy. He's saying, keep them safe. This is Jesus praying for us. Life isn't easy. Jesus certainly wasn't. He suffered grief, he suffered loss, he suffered rejection, he suffered poverty, he suffered torture and a brutal murder not long after this. And in the garden that night, as you read in other passages, he struggled with that more than any, any other time. So much so, his sweat had blood in it. Life isn't easy. But Jesus accepted it was part of a better, more beautiful story. At any point, he could have decided, you know what, I'm God, I can do, I can do what I like. I'm not going through that. Yes? I will do. I haven't forgotten. It's in my notes, Peter, don't worry. That's fine. Thank you for reminding me. It's, uh, it's here. You keep thinking ahead. We'll come back to unity in a minute. I haven't forgotten. Jesus knew it was part of a better, beautiful story. At any time, he could have said, do you know what, I'm not going through that. I don't have to. But he chose to. He chose to. You see, we are a cherished people. Seriously, remember that word. We are a cherished people. Verse 9 I pray for them. I can't get over that. Jesus prays for me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Do you remember what Jenny shared during worship last week, that prophetic word? She said, God the Father doesn't foster us. He adopts us. I had an interesting chat later on that day with with another Christian who was going, but all I think of when I think of the word adoption is that someone didn't want me. And we talked through the fact that adoption, as much as it is about someone didn't want you, or you were rejected, or you were abandoned, what's more important is that someone does want you. God the Father wants you. He cherishes you. He adopted you. He wants us. He doesn't just wrap us up in cotton wool either, though. If we had our way, life would be easy, and I'd be a 40-year-old toddler. Isn't it? That's ridiculous. If we had our way, that's how, that's, that's how I'd end up. Life is easy, I'd never grow up. Some say I haven't. God doesn't wrap us up in cotton wool because he's got our best interests at heart. He wants us to grow up. 
Life isn't easy, but it's for a reason, and it's a better reason. That's not diminishing or putting to one side the hard things we go through. Some people here have been through much harder stuff than I ever have. I'm not minimising that in any way. But I do know that God has got your best best interests at heart. The difference is walking through life and all the pain that it can sometimes bring, knowing that our ultimate safety is his goal. And that safety is secure because he's God and he's a good God and he does good. Do I really remember that Jesus prays for my protection? Romans 8.34 saying that Jesus is sitting at the Father's right hand interceding for us. Action. He's intervening on our behalf now. I don't even know half the time what's going on behind the scenes. I don't know what's coming up in 2013 for me. Jesus is praying for me. It's amazing. He's got my ultimate safety at heart. And that's where this joy comes in. Knowing that safety, knowing that protection, gives us a deep life joy that confounds the wise. What is that joy? It's not happy, happy, joy, joy. I'm bouncing off the walls because I had a car crash and I hurt myself and I got really ill and then a friend died and I've lost my job. Happy, happy, joy, joy. That's not real, is it? Of course it's not. But there is a deep life joy that is available and Jesus knew that joy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Why did he endure that cross? For the joy set before him. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The last thing I'd want to face is a cross that Jesus faced. Jesus at no point was happy, happy, joy, joy, I'm going to be hung on a cross. Of course he didn't. The human side of him was terrified. He was sweating blood at the thought of it. He knew what was coming up. But he did it with a deep life joy in him. That kind of joy surpasses trials, even death. And is rooted deep in a man's soul and will not be shaken knowing that your ultimate hope, as Hugh was sharing last week, if you haven't heard Hugh's sermon last week, listen to it. Your ultimate hope is secure. Your ultimate safety in him is secure if you believe in him as your saviour. It's as simple as that. And there is a joy that wells up from that that no one can take from you. That's the very joy he wants us to not just have some of, but to have the full measure of. It's available. I got to spend some time with our little Betty in hospital shortly before she passed away. And she was weak, she had trouble breathing, she couldn't always complete a a whole sentence, she was so out of breath. But there was a smile on her face, she goes, you know what? If he takes me now, it'd be brilliant. I've got a joy, I'm going to see my Jesus. I'm going to see my Archie, her husband she'd missed. I have a joy and I have a knowledge and a safety and a security in him, the ultimate hope that no one can take. She had that deep life joy in her. It's available. Otherwise Jesus wouldn't have said it. We can have the full measure of that. How do we get it? By hearing these words and letting them soak in. Seriously, is it as simple as that? Because that's what Jesus says. Verse 13... Let's read that verse again.
Well, I'm coming to you. Now. Remember, the disciples are listening in. So while he's with his disciples, he didn't retreat to a corner and then pray this prayer. He said it in front of them so they could hear it and record it. And in front of them, he says this out loud. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world. I'm saying it while I'm still here, so they hear it, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. He's talking to the Father, but he's saying it out loud so the disciples hear it. John memorised it so well, he wrote it down so we can read it. He probably recorded it on his mobile phone or something. (coughs) So that, if you hear this, what I'm saying out now, if you hear this, you will receive the full measure of my joy. If you know what I'm saying, that I want your protection, and I don't just want it, I'm going to do something about it. You're safe. I'm talking out loud so you know what I think of you, and so you know that I, eternal God, what I'm doing for you. We can never have enough encouragement in the church, can we? Always look for ways to encourage each other. Always look for the positive. If you think something encouraging about someone, make sure you say it out loud to them. Encouragement is a massive pillar of the church. And our king leads the way. He started that. So let's follow his example. Knowing this truth, like I've already said, brings a deep life joy that confounds the wise. Why are you like this? Let me tell you all about my friend. If I face trials in life but I haven't soaked in his word, what will I be thinking when those trials come? Where do I turn for the truth when the storm comes? Again, this is what Hugh was referring to last week. About having that anchor. Anchors aren't for calm times, anchors are for storms. If I don't embrace, get a tight grip on what Jesus is saying to me in this Bible, when the storm comes my mind will be all over the place. And I won't be thinking of him, I won't be clinging to him, I won't be resting in the fact that he's got my back. Am I soaking up in his word on a regular basis? Quite often we can just go through the mundane, typical working week and so often, however many days, forget to read the Bible. It doesn't matter, I can do it next week, blah, blah, blah. You never know when that trial's going to come, you never know when that storm's going to come. I'd rather be soaking in his word all the time because when that storm comes, I'm not going to be shaken. I can rest in him, on him, the rock. Am I deeply, not just reading it, but am I deeply taking it on board? Am I reflecting it, reflecting on it during the day? Or am I just snatching a verse here and there? Just so I feel better or because it's out of duty or because I'm trying to win God over. Look, I'm reading a Bible. Or am I genuinely getting hold of this truth? getting on board with what he's given me, stepping forward into the truth that he's always already shared with me, but I'm not always receiving. So Jesus prays that God gets the glory, and Jesus prays for our safety, and that we get joy out of knowing that. And this all leads up to unity. Because if we are all on board sharing the same vision of going, you know what, it's not about me. And I love you, brother, but it's not about you. It's about him. And let's make sure everybody knows that. We're all facing the same way. We end up squabbling less when we're all facing the same way. It's true. And if we're all together, knowing his safety, knowing his protection, knowing he's praying for us, even right now, 
and we get a, a, an all-surpassing joy from within that, not just as individuals, but as a local expression of the church, people go, why are you all like this? When you're facing the economy we're facing, and so many of you are, have been ill, and not all of you have got jobs, you're having trouble p- paying the bills, and such and such happens, how come you've still got a smile on your face? It's a little bit weird and I can't get my head around it. Let me tell you about my friend. It brings us unity together, doesn't it? Let's look at this unity in, speci- uh, in a specific way before we end. Let's look at the last section because this ultimately is what's on God's heart. This is the big thing because then he prays for the future. All believers, those that haven't been saved yet, which ends up being us and those that haven't been saved after us as well. Verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone, these disciples that are listening in. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, the generations to come, isn't it? That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, people notice. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. He prays for our unity, not just with each other, but with those that are still to join us. Why? Verse 23 is the reason. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Our unity, actually is evidence that demands that verdict. It's about becoming a community, community, that demands an explanation. We live in a world that demands evidence now. We live in a world where science is no longer a tool, it has become a god, and it's all about, show me evidence, and I'll believe. As much as there is supernatural evidence, there are signs and wonders, there are healings that medicine, the medical profession cannot explain. We've shared some of those here before, haven't we? We've seen some of those here before and I want to see plenty more. There is evidence. There is historical evidence for Jesus the man to have been born at a certain time in a certain place and lived a certain way that fulfilled prophecies that were written 1,500 years earlier. There is evidence. There is evidence for the resurrection. There is historical evidence. But actually, the greatest evidence, the greatest evidence that demands an explanation is you and me. We are his greatest evidence. Exhibit A. And as much as we screw that up and people get the wrong idea of who Jesus is because they look at the way the church behaves sometimes, it can be despicable. And I don't want to be like that and I don't want to be responsible for that. But God's heart for us, when we follow things his way, when we hold tightly to his core values, when it works, God is in the courthouse going, Exhibit A. My church. Look at that. Give me a reason for that. Because the only reason you'll ever come up with is me. 
community that demands an explanation. This is why he gave us the new commandment. There are two main commandments that Jesus highlights. You see them in Matthew 22. It just says, love God, love your neighbour. Remember that. Love God, love your neighbour. This is spoken by the guy, the man who was murdered two days later, a few days later by his neighbours. Love them, he goes, love them. Love God, love your neighbour. But then he says, I'll give you a new commandment. And right at the beginning of this whole section, back at John 13, verse 34, a new commandment I'll give you, love one another. Not just others that don't believe. Love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples. There's that shop window again. There's that evidence. People stand up and take notice. Loving one another is a shop window for everybody else to see. I want them to look through that glass and see a church that glorifies Jesus, not one that tears down everything he stands for. To encourage you, Stephen Helen's wedding last month, someone made a comment, I've never been in a room full of so many selfless people. Let's keep doing that. People notice, and they can't get their heads around it. And it's brilliant. Because it points the way to him. It passes the applause along, I'd hope. Why are you doing this? Let me tell you about my friend Jesus. Unity, unity, unity. It's so high on his agenda. Verse 21. That all of them may be one. Next verse, verse 22. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one, as we are one. Verse 23. May they be brought to complete... Unity, it's unity, unity, unity. He can't stop saying it because it's so much at the heart of what he stands for and everything he believes and everything he loves. Unity for his people. What is this unity? It's, it's not ignoring our differences. It's not pretending everything's okay or pretending we get on with each other. It's not becoming clones, Stepford family. It's not that at all. It's being a real family with core values that keep wanting to pass the applause along knowing we're safe, finding joy in that and pointing the way to our king. That's family and that's unity. Willy Wonka in the Royal, in the Royal da- Roll Dahl children's story, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Willy Wonka built himself a family of Oompa Loompas. He gathered them from some other nation of Oompa Loompa land, whatever it was called, dumped them in his factory. They all look the same, they all wear the same thing, they all talk the same. They all sing the songs at the right time. They're all doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're all fulfilling the roles and they're all keeping that factory buzzing and they're being very, very productive and they're fun to be around. But they're all just clones. That's not real unity, is it? And so Willy Wonka knows this. He goes, I've got this family business, if you like, and I've got to pass it on to someone. And I can't pass it on to one of these Oompa Loompas. I need to pass it on to another human being who will inevitably, because they're human, is different to me. And Charlie Bucket ends up being very different in some ways to Willy Wonka. But they share the same core values. Even Willy Wonka got that. Unity is different to all being the same. That's not unity. The best family isn't one that wears matching jumpers, has perfect teeth, false smiles, never disagreeing, Stepford family. That's not real family. That's not unity. The real family is one that shoulders storms together, that loves each other despite differences. Not ignoring them, but loving each other anyway. In many ways, embracing difference. 
Real family is one that supports and encourages each other. An encouragement again. Real family is one that accepts others while still holding firm to the family's core values. We need to embrace everyone that comes in our way who don't even believe the same as us. We still need to accept them for who they are. Love them. Love God, love neighbours. Then love one another. Love them for who they are. We're allowed to say, as we were saying about word and action earlier, we're allowed to say what we believe. We're allowed to talk about where we agree and where we don't agree. Just because you accept someone doesn't mean you're necessarily approving what they believe or what they do. But we can still accept them for who they are and love our neighbour. We're still not letting go of our family's core values. There's one more thing I want to point out about unity. It's not just a good thing that God has decided is good for us and produces the best results that gives him the applause. There's more to it than that. It reflects him. We are made in God's image, yeah? We're made in the image of God. For a long, long time, many years, I've always thought of God the Father, made in his image. Not necessarily, he he has a white beard and neither do I. One's a bit smaller and different colour. But in terms of character, in terms of relationship, in terms of intimacy, we reflect God and his image. I get that. It wasn't until I actually hit upon the first time we see that in Genesis chapter 1, there's even more to it that we keep forgetting. The first time it talks about mankind being made in God's image. What does it say? What does the verse say? Let us make him, make man in our image. Father, Son and Holy Spirit were all involved in creation. Let us, eternal God, it's not three gods, we're not polytheists, we're monotheists, one God, three persons. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. It's totally unique. No other religions like it and there's a reason for that because God made it up. Let us, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, make man in our image. It's about being equal but different roles. We need to embrace our differences but understand we're all equal. We're allowed to be different. We don't all have to be the same. And that reflects God. God is perfect unity, perfect community. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Never began. Always was. Always is, always will be perfect community and we reflect that if we hold on to the values that he's given us rather than thinking we know better so often in the church I can see people squabbling I was hearing about some, not here but I was hearing about some elsewhere in another, another church and people are squabbling and I'm just thinking Jesus wins why are you squabbling why are you squabbling, it's petty but we can get these. We can allow the temptation is it's such a big danger. We can allow these things to become so big to us that I'm not going to let go of my principle and what I stand for. And actually, if you were willing to let go of it for a moment and step back and go, why are we arguing about that? We're just letting people looking through the shop window go. Christianity ain't for me. Look at them. Don't squabble. Love one another despite differences, and allow our community to reflect God. And if you don't know Jesus, that's for you as well. You were made, whether you believe in Jesus or not, you were made in God's image. You were made to be equal but different. You were made a certain way because he wants you that way. You were were given certain gifts 
certain talents, certain abilities, certain opportunities, certain, certain circumstances, because he wants that for you. He's got your best interests at heart, and you are made to reflect God. And the best way of reflecting God and community is not just in any old community. We love community. We love to be tribal. We love to, love to be affiliated to a football team or a certain kind of music or a certain batch of people who live in our cul-de-sac or a certain bunch of school friends. Or We love to be tribal. There's a reason for that. It reflects God. It's community. But the best way of reflecting God's community is to be in amongst his family, reflecting his core values and not ones we came up with and think we know better because there's always consequences to that and they're always negative. If you don't know Jesus, you were made for that, to be a part of his community, reflecting him and showing the world that he's brilliant. And Jesus made that possible. We can't stand before a perfect God without having our sin dealt with. And Jesus stood in your place the next day after this passage. Suffered a brutal, brutal, brutal murder. He got his hands dirty with his own blood. So you can stand before God, be free before him, be adopted into his family, your sin dealt with. There's still things to walk through and habits to ask for his help to get out of. A past to get your head round. It's real life. He doesn't pluck us out of life, but he helps us walk through it knowing we're safe, we have a deep life joy in him, we can keep bringing the applause his way because he's got our best interests at heart and it brings unity that reflects him and yet more applause goes his way. And that's why he came and that's why we're celebrating Christmas next week. As nativity would tell us all about. Isn't it brilliant? We at Beacon are doing okay. I need to encourage you. When I hear about other churches and I speak to other leaders, I think, thank God for Beacon. Seriously, I do. And I do, thank God for Beacon. You're brilliant. We can always do better. And let's, let's aim for it, not because we're rubbish, but because he's leading us into something even better. What can, what can 2013 bring? It can bring some hard times, but it can bring some massive applause that goes his way because of what he's done through us. That's what I want to see. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I'm trusting him that he's got our back and we can, yet again, in more ways, reflect his unity by being united together as family. Not ignoring our differences, but loving each other anyway and loving everybody else that doesn't know him. Shall we do that? Is that our aim? Is that our prayer for 2013? Yes. Yes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that we can know you that we can know God. Thank you so much that we as mankind cannot reach you. We're effectively in quicksand without you and the harder we kick, the more we sink, the more we try harder. All we need to do is rest in you, reach out for that outstretched arm and take your hand. Jesus, thank you that you came down to us. You came down to earth, born on this planet, became a man and revealed yourself to us and then took my place, our place on that cross, that my sin can be dealt with in the legal, spiritual realms. You took my sin upon your shoulders, you represented me. That I can be free from jealousy, from bitterness, from grudges, from pettiness, from squabbles, I can be free to live life as you want me, not on my own, 
but as one of your children and your family where we together can reflect you in an even greater way. Lord, may our community here at Beacon move from one degree of glory to another. Help us to do that, Lord. We're humans. We still let you down. We're still, <laughs> we can still trip over. But you're there to pick us up again. Lord, forgive me for the times I've thought negative thoughts about my brothers or sisters. Lord, forgive me for the times when I haven't been truly united, perhaps on the outside but not on the inside. Forgive me for the times I've done things just out of duty and not just because I love you and love others. And Lord, as we come now to celebrate Christmas, let us enjoy the fact that you came to this earth. But let us enjoy the truth of what that means to us today, that you made this possible in the first place. Jesus, we thank you. And as we go from this place, Lord, this week, let me never let go of this. Cause me to keep reflecting on this. Cause me to love my brothers and sisters. Cause me to love those that don't know you. That you might get the applause. In your precious, precious, precious name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.